Tennessee Republicans once again punt on gun legislation after two recent mass shootings and a conversation with an activist trying to expel or force Representative David Byrd to resign. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of August 12th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. This past week, uh, we have been trying to poll and engage members of the congressional and local uh, legislative delegations to see where they're at in terms of uh, taking action in response to recent shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas. Thus far, we have not heard any concrete action from any Republicans in power in either the congressional delegation or the state legislature. Uh, Natalie, you recently talked to Governor Bill Lee about this issue. Uh, What did he have to say? Yeah, the governor was asked about this last week. Um, It was during the NCSL conference. It was was just after uh, everyone got back for the week from the weekend of two mass shootings in the U.S. And, And the governor was asked what can Tennessee do to to try to prevent a crisis like this from happening? Uh, will you support asking the legislature to um, take up a red flag law, as President Donald Trump has suggested, should take place around the country? And the governor, um, he, he essentially avoided answering the question. He said he had not yet examined a red flag law. Of course, a Republican in the in the state Senate, Steve Dickerson, brought forth red flag law legislation this year, um, and Republicans in the House and Senate declined to take it up. The governor was asked about, you know, a series of other gun control measure, measures, universal background checks and waiting periods and things like that. And of course, he had the same answer on all of them. Um, he was still considering what should be done. Um, we asked him, do you foresee any kind of specific gun control legislation being introduced next session? And he said um, he suspected there would be legislation around increased citizen safety. And of course, all of the Republicans that we've talked to, and that, again, is all the Republican members of the congressional delegation, as well as uh, Cameron Sexton, who sent a joint statement along with William Lamberth and Michael Curcio of the House and Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally, all stressed the importance of having this balance, right? Not necessarily infringing on the rights of, of uh, you know, gun owners and the Second Amendment, while also being cognizant that this is uh, a, a recurring issue, that this is something that is not necessarily going away. We sent six uh, variations of questions to uh, those uh, members of uh, office, uh, and and they really didn't answer any of them. Uh, everybody kind it's of punted. It's really a surprise. It, 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 it isn't. I mean, it, it, it's something that happens all the time, but it is a, a symbolic of the fact that there aren't really, um, I, I wouldn't say genuine, but there isn't actual um, interest to move towards this issue. There is only an effort to sort of distance itself from the issue. On the other side, though, in another state, you had um, recently several lawmakers, including uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, say there will be a vote in the U.S. Senate uh, at, at some point in September, he thinks, on increased background checks. You've got the president touting that uh, and plans to take up action. Um, Tennessee, meanwhile, is just kind of continually in its same place where uh, they don't necessarily seem to be at the forefront of action. 
Yeah. And, you know, even some states nearby, Kentucky, West Virginia, those state legislatures are also looking at red flag laws. Um, we Joel and I ran into Theo Morrison this past weekend on Friday at, a, at an event for Senator Jack Johnson. Theo Morrison is a lobbyist representing every town for gun safety. And he said he went up to Marco Rubio, who was a guest speaker at this dinner, um, and, and mentioned to him, you know, that he he was disappointed that Tennessee hadn't making, made any attempts to pass a red, red flag law. And he said that Marco Rubio responded um, with surprise. And he said, you know, he, he couldn't believe that Tennessee hadn't done that either and um, suggested that it was a good thing. So, you know, it is something that we are seeing Republicans around the country sort of um, change their position on and in light of the last mass shooting. And some of them have supported it for some time. So I guess we'll see what what happens here if if anyone does change their mind on uh, introducing red flag laws. We have with us this week on the podcast, Christina Richardson. Christina is one of the women who has shown up week after week at the legislature this past session to protest David Byrd, his being in the legislature, his at one point being the chairman of an education subcommittee. David Byrd is the lawmaker who has been accused by three women of sexually assaulting them when they were teenagers in the 1980s. He was their teacher and their basketball coach at Wayne County High School at the time. And Christina is a constituent of David Byrd. She lives in Hardin County, which is in his district. She is a mother of four children. She's a veteran in the Army National Guard. Um, Christina, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, y'all. So so I'm sure you've been quoted in stories where, you know, people are being thrown out by troopers and, you know, arrested <laughs> and, and whatnot uh, throughout the session. Uh, you would make the, what, three hours each way drive at least once a week? Yes. Uh, to come up to the Capitol to do that. So I want to hear from you about why you're doing this. Um, when did you start? How did you get involved um, and if, if you don't mind, talk about your own experience as as a rape survivor from from what you've said before, you were about the same age these women were when they were uh, sexually allegedly sexually assaulted by David Byrd. Yes. Um, the way that I met uh, the other volunteers with Enough is Enough Tennessee, I was working or volunteering with a local domestic violence and sexual abuse um, organization. And we were having a walk against domestic violence in Hardin County that day. And it just so happened to be a day that Enough is Enough was coming to Canvas. And we all were on the courthouse square at the same time. I didn't know anything about it because the local news doesn't cover it. It's not in our local newspaper. So unless you go looking for that information and, you know, we don't have cable, we, it's not there. So they told me what was going on, and I was like, I've got to do something about this. I can't just sit back and watch this happen. Um, you know, I was raped when I was 16, and one of the first people that I told, aside from my friends, was a teacher. You know, and so it, like, really hit home for me, because what if I had gone to a teacher like David Bird and told him what had happened to me, and he used that opportunity to groom me, you know, and so it just really hit home for me. Um, and knowing how long it took me to deal with it and talk about it openly, I didn't start talking about it openly until a year or two ago. Um, and you're how old now? 
I am 38. Okay. So, I mean, that has been, you know, uh, a talking point many of the the bird defenders have used is this happened 30 plus years ago. Why are we just not hearing about it? Why why is Christy Rice and and these other women just not coming forward? Uh, So that, I imagine, is something that resonated with you, that that feeling of not of not being able to talk about it. Yes. Um, They tell you not to feel like it's your fault, but you always do. Um, There's embarrassment, especially when you're a teenager, because, you know, even though it's rape and it's non-consensual, it still brings to mind sex and you don't want to talk about sex when you're a teenager. So it's, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. You try to forget that it happened especially when it's with a person who's in power, a person who's popular, a person who's in charge of you, basically, um, such as, you know, David Bird was. So you, um, I, I imagine, went through a lot of uh, emotions, you know, this year as you watched the legislature go. Uh, you were often at the legislature. What was your reaction when you heard the first week of the session that Glenn Cassida, the then House Speaker, named David Byrd to be a chairman of a committee? Furious. <laughs> Absolutely furious. Um, because I I don't think he did it because Byrd deserved the chairman seat. I think he did it as, you know, a way to own the libs, you know, <laughs> like because they think we're these, like, crazy radical liberals and we're just we're just women who care about survivors and you know and on that note uh it, it was a a new committee that Cassida created it, it wasn't an existing committee he actually did create this as a as a brand new committee um it, it didn't see a lot of bills this session I know it was canceled uh on multiple occasions <laughs> uh, for lack of bills or at least that's what they said you all were thrown out um of that subcommittee meeting at least once by, by mm-hmm. state troopers. Um, so on, on the top, we, we just touched base the, on the topic of, of why survivors don't come forward. What are some of the other um, talking points you're hearing from defenders of Byrd or people who don't think he should be removed from office? And, and what are some of those, I guess, what you would call uh, misconceptions and what you would say to those people who are using those talking points? Um, one that I hear the most is that his district voted him in, let him stay. Well, I have several counterpoints to that. Yes, his district voted him in, but we're almost an entirely red district. There was no one who primaried him because they didn't, no one thought they could beat David Byrd. The allegations didn't come out until right before the primary. It was too late for anyone to primary him. I believe had they come out earlier, there would have been somebody primarying him, and I might not even be here right now today talking to y'all. Who are we as a legislature, I've heard, uh, to undermine the will of that district, right? Yes, yes. Um, and that's another thing is, yes, he's from our district. David Byrd is my representative, but he's not making legislation for the entire state, and the entire state has a say in whether they feel safe having him as a representative. You know, I've seen several groups um, say that they were bringing uh, kids up here, like the Safe Tennessee Project, uh, brought children up here on the anniversary of the Parkland shooting, and they skipped Bird's office because they didn't feel comfortable bringing the kids around David Bird. 
And so, I mean, it, it affects everyone in Tennessee, just like sexual abuse does. What, what are some other things that you've, you've heard in response to you guys' efforts? Um, that it's all politically motivated and that we're doing a political hit job on David Byrd. We're not because we know 100% that they're going to replace him with another Republican. We don't care. We just want it to be a Republican that hasn't hurt anyone, that hasn't abused anyone. That is an extremely low bar, and it seems like one that should be able to be met. Do you know if there is any um, viable candidates who have come forward and said they would challenge David Byrd if he decides to seek re-election or that they do plan to run for a seat? Is there any movement on that in, in District 71? I went to the uh, city council meeting and I talked to the mayor um, to encourage them to be looking for somebody to run or to primary bird. Um, I've been trying to get in touch with the Hardin County uh, Republican Party to speak with them. Like, you know, let's find somebody that y'all want to primary bird. Y'all pick them. (laughs) Like we, you know, we're not trying to get people to put a Democrat in District 71. We're trying to remove a credibly accused child molester. But so far, it doesn't seem like there have been any takers for that? Not yet. Um, I was kind of, I wouldn't say blown off, but they they nodded politely at me. (laughs) And, uh, but I'll be back. <laughs> and I'm, do you think that the people in the district care about this? I mean, do you think that they are impacted at all when they hear Christie's story or any of these other women's stories? Yes, I think that they are. That was one of the really surprising things. In Hardin County, when we went out and canvassed, nobody knew about it. Like, it was like brand new information to them. When we went to Wayne County, everyone knew. But they thought it was so long ago. There was, um, you know, it was kind of likened to it being an affair. It's not an affair when they're 15 years old. It doesn't become, you know, child molestation doesn't become a gray area when somebody grows breasts, you know. And so we talked to them, um, but we had some we had some good conversations even in Wayne County. Um, I talked to one woman you know, she didn't want to talk to us when we knocked on the door, so we're getting ready to leave. And she said, um, or and I said, can I just tell you one thing real quick? And I told her, you know, I'm from here. I'm from Savannah. It's right up the road. And I'm a rape survivor. And I told her my story. And then she started crying and told me her story. And we talked for about 30 minutes. And when it was over, she was like, I can't vote for him. And you know, unfortunately, we didn't have time to talk to every person for 30 minutes, you know, but we've had people in his district come up to us at events and thank us for being there. Um, when we protested in outside the middle school in Wayne County, um, we were live broadcasting it and we had three or four people just see it on Facebook and drive over to the middle school to join us. So. so on August 23rd, the legislature is going to come back, have a special session, uh, largely to swear in House Speaker, uh, the next House Speaker, uh, Cameron Sexton, uh, and then a couple of procedural uh, issues they're going to handle. Um, there has been a resolution filed to expel David Byrd. What are you hoping happens at that special session? And, and are you optimistic that, you know, it, it could lead to an expulsion vote? 
I have all my fingers and toes crossed, but I'm I'm not very optimistic about it because Gloria Johnson had to jump through so many hoops just trying to get the paperwork even filed for the resolution, um, which is frustrating because when they expelled Jeremy Durham, there wasn't even a resolution. And now they're talking about not bringing it to the floor, the uh, bird expulsion vote. And so, I mean, it's very frustrating. Um, it should not be this hard to get people to care. They don't have to believe it one way or the other. But when you hear these allegations, you should go, that sounds terrible. We should probably look into that. You should come from a place, you know, a start by believing place. That's the campaign we called it with um, RAP, the group that I work with, um, where you approach every um, report of sexual abuse as if it has merit and you investigate it. We went around to all the police officers, the mayors, you know, first responders and everybody. And that's all we want. Like, I mean, how can you hear that tape and not think we should probably look into that? The, the, the one thing I keep hearing, though, from Republicans is they keep saying, essentially, this this action that he did or did not do that that, that they're pointing to uh, happened before he was in office. Right. So why should the legislature punish a member for something they didn't do while they're in office. Now, you know, let's say uh, there is a, a de Democrat who is really unliked by uh, a House speaker. Could they just vote willy-nilly on a Tuesday that, hey, we, we want to expel this person? So that's what I think they're mm -hmm. worried about that precedent. What do you say to that? Um, that's why we've been asking for an investigation this whole time, because not only are there the allegations from 30 years ago, if they did the investigation, they would know that Byrd showed up at Christie's work, Christie Rice's work, after the allegations had been made public. He just showed up at her work and got her boss to give him a tour. That's harassment. That's intimidation. I mean, that's inappropriate. And maybe it doesn't violate ethics. I don't know. But it's something that they would know about if they had bothered to do an investigation. And, and on that point about, you know, what maybe some Republicans are saying, um, they also have raised the point, well, well, why aren't you all doing as much to to oust Rick Staples from the legislature? Rick Staples being a Democratic lawmaker who uh, was found to have violated the legislature's sexual harassment policy this uh, session for um, inappropriately touching a woman who was visiting the legislature, um, perhaps other offenses as well, but those were the only things that, that Joel and I could could find out from our reporting. So what, what would you say to that, and do you all have plans to focus on Rick Staples in the future? Absolutely, 100%. Um, I'm infuriated by Staples, the fact that he got a slap on the wrist and a letter in his file and basically told to do do better. You know, that's not okay. Honestly, we did not expect it to be, I mean, we knew it would be hard, but we didn't expect it would take driving three hours both ways, you know, every week. We didn't expect it would take a sit-in at the governor's office. We expected someone would at least meet with us and talk to us at the very least. We didn't expect to have to expend all of our energy and what little manpower we have on bird. And we'd already started this, and that's what had the attention. So we definitely have plans um, to, I hate to say come after, but, you know, we definitely have plans um, to try to get staples removed because, it, like we've said, sexual abuse and domestic abuse do not have party lines. It affects everyone. 
no matter where you're from, no matter which way you vote or what you look like or anything like that. So, and um, to that point, we also uh, are eyeballing David Hawk really hard too. <laughs> um, I think it's horrific that he's still in the legislature when he was convicted of reckless endangerment for hitting his wife. I mean, it's, there's, there's so many and we, we have a, you know, people think we're like this huge, you know, organization that are getting paid by George Soros or something. And we're not, we're like six to 10 women, depending on who can show up on what day. And we only have so much bandwidth, but we're coming for <laughs> I wanted to ask you about um, your perspective of how the governor has handled all this. Um, you know, he went from initially sort of not really having any feelings about the matter to then all of a sudden deciding he's going to meet with Christy Rice, uh, kept mum on, on what he thought about that initially. And then we hear through back channels that he is, uh, I guess, maybe encouraged David Byrd either to resign. He, he or, told him not to seek reelection. Yeah, yeah. And that's been kind of the, 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 the main talking point is that, you know, there's an understanding in place that he won't run again. But uh, go back to the, the central point of the question. The, the governor, how do you feel he has handled this? And does it make you, uh, are you worried about potential future other issues that could arise in other, uh, you, with other lawmakers? Yes. Um, I, I hate to come on here and trash talk. <laughs> um, I feel like Governor Lee has handled this terribly. We have asked to meet with him over and over and over again. Before we went and did a sit-in at his office, we didn't do that just all willy-nilly. Like we sent hundreds of emails, made hundreds of phone calls. We came and hand-delivered letters to his office, tried to make appointments and he ignored us. And this was after we had done the same thing with Glenn Cassida. And we felt like we had to do something big to get his attention. Um, he did meet with Christy Rice, but he waited 70 days to make a statement about her. And even then, all he said was that he found her credible and that Bird had, had, had to answer some questions or answer for it or something like that. Of which he still has not answered. Oh, no. Right? And I'm told that um, Governor Lee, when he told Byrd not to seek re-election, also asked him those questions about the allegations and Byrd refused to answer them. And I mean, if you didn't do something, why not say it? Yeah, David David Bird has pretty much been silent on this since the original allegations were made in uh, WSMV. That was spring 2018. David Bird put out a statement at the time, basically saying he he hadn't done anything wrong while he was in the legislature. Uh, he did try to attack the credibility of his accusers, but he never actually denied the allegations. Yes, he's never ever denied the allegations. And then, you know, he had the help of Glenn Cassida and Michael Lotby running the attack ads, you know, calling the survivors fake news, saying that we were crazy socialists that had been bussed in from California. And I'm like, I drove five miles up the road, <laughs> you know, I live, people still don't believe I live in Hardin County. Like I, I really do. y'all. <laughs> like, um, they just don't believe me. <laughs> so, so to wrap up here, let's say that David Bird, um, somehow is expelled. You know, I don't know that that's very likely right now in the special session or he, or he decides at whatever point he can't 
continue on with all of this pressure and he he quits his uh, his seat in the legislature or let's say, you know, none of that happens. Um, and he, you know, next spring rolls around and he says he's not going to run for reelection. Um, is enough is enough going to continue? Are you guys going to continue showing up the legislature? What is your role moving forward once David Byrd um, has been dealt with? Are we going to continue working with Bird or going? No, or are you going to continue showing up the legislature to, oh, to yes. protest? Like, so maybe yes. talk a little bit about what the future is going to be for you all once once your your first order of business is taken care of. Um, some of the faces, some of the volunteers may change. Um, you know, burnout in this kind of uh, this kind of action is common, but we're going to keep fighting. Um, I, for one, can't unknow what I know after spending so much time up there. And I can't just sit back as a survivor and as a veteran that loves my state and loves my country. And I can't watch people do things like this in it and not say something. I mean, I just can't. But so, yeah, we'll I, for one, am still going to be here. <laughs> we, we appreciate you talking with us, Christina, and sharing your story, why you're doing what you're doing. Um, certainly, if anyone has been following state politics this session, they have heard about you guys and what you're up to. Uh, so we appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me, y'all. All right. Joining us today over the phone from Knoxville is Tyler Whetstone, uh, the uh, Knoxville City Hall reporter who has been keeping a close eye and reporting on uh, the ongoing mayor's race there to replace uh, Madeline Rojero. Tyler, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So, uh, Tyler, right now it looks like uh, early voting is underway for the uh, mayoral race. Um, how, how long does that go on? Yeah, we have early voting started earlier this week at the last until the uh, 22nd of August. And really what that looks like is uh, we'll have uh, that last of the 22nd and then election day is the uh, 27th the next week. And it'll be 50% plus one gets you out of the runoff, which is, as we'll talk about in a second, pretty unlikely uh, with three pretty legitimate candidates. And so uh, if that happens, if we have a runoff, which is, like I said, it's pretty likely we'll uh, have another election uh come November. And and so we've had that same scenario play out here in Nashville where we had, uh, you know, a, a, a runoff that's going to end up uh, going in September. But who have been some of the top tier, you know, the, the people you're paying attention uh, closely to that you think could make it through the runoff? Yeah, sure. It's really interesting. We have, uh, so Madeline Rayo, as you mentioned a second ago, she's term limited. She's uh, been mayor for eight years and she was the first female mayor elected to one of the big four cities here in Nashville. She preceded uh, um, Megan Berry in Nashville and others. So she's very popular here in Knoxville, continues to be pretty popular uh, here in Knoxville. And all three of the major candidates that we have, um, India Kincannon, Eddie Manis, and Marshall Stair, have some sort of connection or offshoot uh, to her term as mayor. Uh, Let's just kind of go in that order, if you don't mind. India Kincannon uh, is someone who used to be on the school board. She's a school board chairman. several years ago, uh, quit being on school board in 2014, but was a, uh, on Rojero's staff for a little while, helping set up the 2020 census for the city of Knoxville. So 
I'm very familiar with Rodeo, very much in that same uh, vein, if you will. Uh, you have Eddie Manis, who's the only Republican in this nonpartisan race, who's getting um, some attention, getting a lot of attention. He's a local businessman who has ran or has run a uh, cleaning service, a, a dry cleaning service for 30 plus years, and has been in the community as chairman of the airport board and the zoo and lots of other things, but it was also a member of O'Hara's staff for a number of years was her uh, chief operating officer. So uh, very well liked, very well known in the community. Then lastly, and certainly not least, is uh, Marshall Stair, who was a two-term citywide councilman. Uh, he was elected when he was 32. And he's also terminated for that role, but uh, is a younger candidate uh, for mayor, 40 years old or 39, 40 years old, and uh, be bringing new perspective, uh, new face, and uh, someone who's been in politics for longer than the other two, at least most recently. So it's and, an interesting uh, mix of folks. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. And so what have been some of the the top issues that have been talked about during the, the race? Yeah, sure. So we have uh, some really hot topic stuff going back and forth. We have uh, Recode Knoxville, which is an entire... Uh, rehashing, redrawing of the city's zoning code, which has been a years-long process that's gotten some attention and how that's played out. Uh, Marshall Stairs for it, India Kincan is for it, Eddie Manis not so much. Um, then you have a uh, the city is investing in and has already began, begun work on a new uh, police headquarters, police and fire headquarters, which is a very large, very expensive undertaking, uh, $40 million, a little more than that million dollars for a new facility in North Knoxville and an old hospital. And that's created some division among uh, candidates and how they want to see the money spent and how they want to see it played out. And is, as Eddie Manis says, is that really the best model to have one really big precinct? We would like to have smaller precincts all over the city. And it, those are two of the, the main issues, two of the major issues. Um, nothing too controversial to this point, though, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So, again, as uh, we look to wrap up, the uh, election day is uh, what day again? Yeah, it'll be August 20th. Excuse me. August 27th is election day for the primary, and then November 5th, if it goes to uh, that, which, again, is almost entirely going to happen. We've had a, uh, some early polling that I've looked at, had a lot of undecided the last time I looked. Um, it, it's going to be close. I, I can't imagine anyone gets over 50% uh, in this race with these three candidates. Then you have three other candidates who. While they aren't going to get a large percentage of the vote, will be enough to uh, maybe take some votes away from the other three, which will certainly lend itself to a, to a runoff. Well, thanks for your time. And if anyone wants to continue to watch uh, Tyler's coverage, you can check it out on knoxnews.com. Uh, as always, thanks for coming on, Tyler. Yeah, thanks, Joe. And now finally, our notebook dump. Uh, on Friday, former U.S. ambassador to Japan, Bill Haggerty, showed up at a Williamson County uh, fundraiser for State Senator Jack Johnson. Haggerty briefly addressed the audience, did not speak about his uh, future plans, but was encouraged by Marco Rubio and others uh, that's, who said that they were looking forward to what he does next. In an inter interview separately with uh, myself in the Tennessee Journal, Haggerty essentially said he's going to tour the state and uh, be coming up with this plans in the next couple of weeks. 
Knoxville opinion columnist Victor Ash Monday morning put out an article saying that Jamie Woodson, who was uh, in the running or rumored to be in the running for U.S. Senate Republican candidate, has now said she will not be seeking the office. She told Victor Ash that she was humbled and honored by the encouragement she had received, uh, but would not be seeking public office at this time. She hasn't made an endorsement of Manny Sethi or potentially Bill Hackerty. Stephen West is scheduled to be executed Thursday by lethal injection. West was sentenced to death in 1986 for the murders of Wanda and Sheila Romines. He has since said he didn't commit the murders and has asked Governor Bill Lee to grant clemency. Lee, as of this recording, has not done so. The execution would be Tennessee's fourth since August of 2018. The controversial heartbeat bill, which would ban abortions as early on as six weeks is in a summer study this week. Uh, Monday and Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee is taking up the bill and hearings um, to further study it. It was deemed to be constitutionally suspect this past session. uh, The House passed the bill, but the Senate deferred it to summer study. And finally, embattled former House Speaker Glenn Cassida showed up uh, to the surprise of many to Jack Johnson's fundraiser over the weekend. He appeared uh, with what is believed to be his girlfriend and took the stage along with several other members of the legislature briefly. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. We'll be around next week at our usual time. You can find us on Tuesdays, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, of course. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. This podcast is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.